This episode is part of our ongoing series with NI Connections, where each month we have the chance to sit down with someone interesting from Northern Ireland who's living and working overseas. To find out more about our global diaspora, listen to previous episodes in the series and sign up for a free monthly newsletter. Please visit niconnections.com. Thanks so much and really hope you enjoy today's conversation. Oddly, I can remember um, things that people say, really, can you remember that? I remember one um, building sandcastles in Donegal on the beach with dad, age two. Nice. Um, so I have a visual of the that sort of uh, the sea, those big beaches, that the feeling of that wild north coast, west, yeah. yes, northwest coast. Um, and actually on that holiday, uh, there was some famous uh, American actress staying. And I remember the image of just looking up at this American and she said, oh, what a cute little girl. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's one. So that, and the feeling of being in that wild mm. Atlantic. Um, and then another one is in the Rocky Mountains when I was almost three. And um, we were again on a family trip. Dad's a farmer, so he was out looking at different farming operations in Colorado. And we also went to stay with uh, my mum's cousin, who was working for NASA out there. So he had been out um, doing all sorts of interesting stuff. And uh, I remember the smells of the pine forests. Mm. And I remember brushing my teeth in the Colorado River. And um, there was something that really, really captured my imagination there. Um, again, I think it was just being completely in the wilderness and being in deep in nature. Yeah. Um, so the, I think both of those, I um, I often wonder why I can remember them because I was very young. Yeah. But um, they, it felt like they had a really big impression, left a big impression on me. So, yeah, that sort of real connection to Ireland, but also a connection to something in that uh, wilderness that you get in the States. Yeah, it's uh, different, isn't it? It is different. I yeah. love Donegal. We were married in Donegal. And I think Donegal, I think purple heather, I think damp green colours. It's like something out of The Hobbit. I'm a real nerd. And so I'm just, when I walk around Donegal, I'm like, wow, this is like something you see in a book, which is obviously the wrong way round. But then, you know, Rocky Mountains, I think like, Orange, expansive. Expansive. Really expansive. It's wild. Yeah, the those deep blues and greens of the Rocky Mountains and then the um, slightly greyer but greens and purples of Donegal. Absolutely. So why do you think the wild is so important? There's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> that is a big question. Um, well... I, I could look at it from different perspectives. So the wild is kind of bringing us back to our true nature, uh, that we're not boxed in by society and uh, norms that other people maybe put on us or society puts on us. Um, I have a master's in Jungian psychology, so I could look at it from that perspective and looking at, at, at it from our 
the wild kind of helps us reconnect with our unconscious um, parts um, or helps maybe make the unconscious a bit more conscious by by connecting with that wild. Um, for me, also, I'm a, I'm a body worker as a craniosacral therapist. So uh, for me, my, the experience of the wild gives me a sense of freedom. Mm. So it allows my body to move better, express itself better. Um, allows that creativity to emerge. So that's what the experience of the wild gives to me. Now, I'm very aware that that won't happen for everyone. Other people might feel safer in a more contained environment. Do you think in really, really broad terms, one of the reasons for that could be maybe because they didn't have some of those early experiences mm. like you? Absolutely. Um, I used to live in London, lived in London for about 20 years. God bless you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I, le- I, I thought I was moving for about three years and I ended up for about 20. Um, so in London, I used to live in apartments that were usually converted old Victorian buildings. So I could hear all my neighbours, you know, yeah. squeaking floorboards above and the people arguing next door or whatever. And I would always sleep, as I described, as if with one eye open. So any any squeak or any any, any door banging, I would be, you know, wide awake. Um, and I was talking to someone about it and they were asking me how I could possibly stay alone at Elmfield, where I now live, which is, it's not in the middle of nowhere, but it is in the country and, you know, it's... A, big enough estate and there are bats and owls and all sorts of wild birds and goodness knows what else there. Yeah, there's no neighbours playing bachata music at 2am. <laughs> and I, I am so comfortable walking around there at dark, in, in the dark. You know, no, I don't use a torch. I just, you know, yeah. adjust my eyes and walk around. And I, I love that and I feel safe there. Um, whereas uh, other people who are used in being brought up in the city would feel really scared in that environment. It's really interesting, isn't it? Is Elmfield dark enough? Do you get any light pollution? Oh, we get we do get light pollution, unfortunately, yeah. yes. Elmfield's one of those places that uh, you feel as if you're away from it, everything when you sort of yeah, drive through the gates. Yeah, when, I, when we drove through that day, I was like, oh, well, we've just stepped into a different universe. <laughs> but it's so th- handy. It's like in the middle of, what is it, Guildford or something? It's just outside Guildford. And Guildford is, you know, between Belfast and Dublin, easy access to the west. And, you know, we're, we're really, you know, we're 30 miles from Belfast. Wow. We're 70 minutes from Dublin Airport. You know, we're really, really accessible. But you do feel as if you're away from everything, when it was my safe haven when I was growing up, you know, as soon as I got through the gates, I could breathe out and let go and connect to that wild because Elmfield was um, my parents um, have been there 60 odd years, roughly wow. 60 years. And when they moved there, it was in a fairly rundown, derelict state. It had been quite a grand linen owner's house. But the linen industry had gone downhill. It was, you know, if you think about it, 60-odd years ago, it's not that far after the war. Um, there had been uh, armies stationed there. There had been prisoner of war camp there. So 
and it had been unlived in for 20 years. So the roof was off, there were trees going through the hall, the garden was completely, completely overgrown. The farm, as I say, was, you know, the prisoner of war camp in a really bad state. So, you know, dad got to, he's a farmer and he uh, put the farm back together, then the house, you know, room by room, lawn by lawn, field by field. Or field by field, maybe is the starting point. <laughs> Make the money to be able <laughs> exactly, to store yeah. the house. Um, but we were we were young children there in the seventies, and um, so it was a completely wild place for us to roam around. So, so for me, the wildness is is a coming home as well. So, it's, and that coming home, I love the metaphor because it really does. It goes can go as deep or as wide as you want it to. But for me, getting into that. Um, Freedom of being able to just run around doing whatever we want and making dens, you know, having breakfast and not coming back until uh, we were hungry. Absolutely. Wow. So, you know, as I said, I haven't said it on mic, but we went with our family. So a bunch of friends, my wife, little two-year-old, a couple of other kids in the friendship group, and they had a blast, you know, right. like that body of water, that little stream that trickles through it. Yeah. There's a little bridge. Yeah. And then that takes you into like what I can only describe as ruins. Like, so you would have spent your childhood like crawling up those stones. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I, I love the, the, the history there because that was built by the Victorians. That um, little kind of folly, you know, for the Victorian ladies to have their afternoon tea. There used to be a little boathouse there and a and quite a delicate kind of rockery. Now, as you can see now, it's covered in moss and it's, you know, trees have grown up. It and looks it's, absolutely medieval. It's amazing. It does look <laughs> It looks like, it, again, I'm really, really being a nerd here. I'll say it again, but like, look at something out of Lord of the Rings. Like, yes. it really does. Yes. And yes. there's something on it. Goodness, if I, if I had it done more prep, I could have written the note down. Is there like some sort of animal on the stone? Is there a lion or something? Oh, there is on the um, so there's a little flint arch, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's a, um, a family crest above that. that Not our family crest, but the people who built the house. And was it the linen folk that built it? It was yeah. the linen people. Interesting. So again, if you think about those Victorian times, it was, you know, incredibly well. I would think oppressive. You know, you had to do things in a certain way. Society was so strict. It was so ordered. You know, you were put in your place. You know, whether you were a woman or a worker or a whatever, you know, you had your place and there wasn't a lot of movement to yeah, yeah, yeah. go out of that. And what I love now is the kind of emergence of something else happening at Elmfield, mm. you know, that we can... Uh, invite people and open it up and share it with people and, you know, have people like your children run around and make their own, have their own experience of it. Not what I want, sure. but their own experience. Yeah. You know, we must have spent about two hours throwing sticks into the... Brilliant. Is that a pond, a lake? What is that? Uh, I call it a pond. Some people call it a lake. Okay. It's, into the body of it's water. A, it's, a, it's a big, <laughs> a big, big duck pond. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is. It's, it's really, really magical. So you've dropped a couple of phrases uh, or terms maybe that I'd like to unpack before we go forward, okay? So I think I've got one of them. You said you're a Jungian psychologist or that's you trained right. in the Jungian school. So that's, is it Carl Jung? That's right. Okay, and yes. he's like 
he's a big dog. He's a big deal in the psychology it's, world. And I think you said the main if you were to wrap his word up his work up in one word, which is impossible, probably unconscious. Is that making fair? the unconscious conscious. Making the unconscious conscious. Okay. So we'll park that. You also used the phrase forgive the pronunciation cranioscopial <laughs> <laughs> craniosacral so the cranium being the, your head okay. the sacrum being at the bottom of your spine okay um so working with the um but the dynamics between the two it's a badly named therapy but it's um because it's essentially uh a touch therapy light touch therapy helping the body body mind uh reorganize and find its way home to a place of health. And so is that the school of thought or the style of working that you refer to as body working or is that something else? That, that's the body working, yes. Okay. Yeah, so working with the body. W- pick one. What do you want to do first? Because I'm interested in both. Well, I started off, um, my, my, my journey in, um, in health or professionally in health, started with craniosacral. So I used to, I started off as an accountant. Great. I worked with K, for KPMG in London. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, in the city, just to even add the oh, yeah, no bit wow. there. So this, in the you s- have come home. This is going to be a good chat. I'm enjoying <laughs> this already. <laughs> so, yes, I um, went to university in Edinburgh, studied economics, then went straight down to London and worked for KPMG as uh, an accountant and auditor, and I audited banks in the early nineties. So that was um, the city was was just on the sort of verge of becoming automated, but it wasn't quite automated then. It was a very masculine environment. Um, what do you mean by automated? Just like the finance sector in general? The finance, yeah, okay. the gotcha. banking sector was still using I, written digital. Digital was looming over the industry. Yeah, you, you, know, you probably can't imagine this, but people actually used to do big uh, money deals and write out tickets <laughs> <laughs> rather than put them into a computer oh. like you know, with a pen and paper. I was reading something about bicycle couriers recently and they were talking about how, you know, like pre-fax machine, everyone was just currying stuff by yeah. bicycle around the city. Yeah. Mad. So I did that. Then, uh, it you know, it, it wasn't my natural fit. Um, so I wanted to do something more creative and ended up uh, being finance director of a PR agency. Cool. Which was really good fun. Yeah, that's awesome. So then I was uh, working with a group of 20-somethings, very creative, very dynamic boutique PR agency. I was doing the finance, but also uh, I was uh, looking after the business development and looking after all the um, – kind of HR side of things as well. So working on the training of the um, team and, uh, yeah, really, really creative. We worked with uh, consumer brands and um, talent, so celebrities, music, artists, um, TV productions, with Very the cool. idea that we made celebrities into brands and brands into celebrities <laughs> i like that that's good it's good that you, you remember that wee thing all those years later that's very cool but that's it, that's because it's a solid solid line of copy that's very cool um so you were kind of i don't want to say pushed 
you ended up going down a very, very professional pathway and a very corporate pathway to start. Yes, absolutely. Was that motivated by, I think a lot of people who are capable and who have the means to do so, there's a lot of pressure to put yourself in situations where you can be as quote unquote successful as possible, where maybe it means make as much money as possible or be in the biggest firm or go to the biggest city. And then you had this kind of moment where you said, no, that's not for me. I want to talk about that little pivot moment. Yes. So um, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. If you imagine the 80s is all about, you know, um, kind of consumer capitalism, wasn't it? You know, what 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 did it mean to do well? Mm. You know, get a big job in the city, you know, um, create the creative industries probably weren't. And also, I'm Northern Irish, I think. There's something to be said there about, um, uh, you know, becoming an accountant, um, going down a slightly more traditional route. Yep. Um, But also generally across um, the Western world, probably creative industries weren't then, certainly weren't so valued. Um, It was really good fun working in that kind of uh, PR world. It was very... Very fast, you know, we were working with the media, the tabloids. It was good fun. I was young enough to be able to cope with it all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I used to come home. So this is the pivot moment. I used to come home back to Elmfield and I would go, something here feeds my soul. Mm. And going back to those moments of when I was really little, those when I was two, I just had this dream of being in that wild natural environment um, outside, you know, camping. And then I'd go back to London and I would be in nightclubs and doing, you know, members clubs and all these very glamorous environments, which on paper, you know, well, part of, you know, it was great fun. I loved it. Oh, yeah. But it wasn't feeding my soul, to use that word, that some, you know, it wasn't feeding the deeper part of me. And so I just started noticing that. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, what? okay, what's what's happening here? And I had a fantastic guy, boss, that I work with. Um, and he he and I would talk about, well, what, what could I do maybe to satisfy that part of me a bit more? And I was talking about well-being and doing I, I looked at doing an art course I looked at doing um, different types of health courses counselling trainings all different types of things with the idea that we might set up a some sort of well-being aspect of our this PR agency and because uh, I was thinking well what do I want to do if I ran my own business what would it be and I was thinking well I love people I love people's stories what makes them do what they do I love helping people I love tending to people so you know something in well-being would be what I would do if I was running my own business anyway he and I decided that I should go off and do some training and uh, so I looked at different options and then I literally met a woman in one of our uh, promotional events in a nightclub um, I was uh, promoting a vodka I remember <laughs> Which the Jungian side would be very interested in because that would be, you know, promoting spirit. 
And I turned around to a woman and I said, what do you do? And she said, I'm a craniosacral therapist. Boom. I, th- I thought, what's that? And she told me and I thought, that's what I want to train in. I think that's why they name it like that. It's like a bit of clickbait. You're like, you're a what? And then it just ropes people in. <laughs> and then you end up giving them the rest of your life to it. <laughs> exactly. It's different to saying, what are you, an accountant? And they, they change the subject quickly. <laughs> that's so awesome. I'd love to know... If you think back to, you know, London, Jane, if I just split your identity like that, hope you don't mind me doing that. You know, really fast paced environment. And then Jane, who goes home to Elmfield. How is that person different? So how is that Jane different in her mind and how is that Jane different in her body? Is there any tangible differences that you noticed in those two different environments? Well, I suppose it would depend on whether I was doing it in the same time frame. Mm-hmm. So was I, you know, go, go back 15 years, 18 years actually, even probably to when I started training, doing my craniosacral training. And um, so the... The London Jane probably be more of a live wire. Mm-hmm. The Elmfield at home is probably um, more grounded, uh, bringing a sense of, of inner peace mm-hmm. that sort of maybe then kind of... Uh, There's a, there's a probably, uh, and I noticed this, I've noticed this since I've been back, I've been living back there for 10 years now. I I love talking to all sorts of different people. And that's when the sort of flow in me comes. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in London, it was probably, I was restricted more to a particular bubble. Yeah. Of of people, which didn't allow all of me to um, express. Maybe maybe that's it's it's a bit diff- it's a bit of a difficult question because, you know, I'm almost twenty years older now than I was when when I started noticing those those uh, draws back home, those threads yeah. that were pulling me back home. Yeah. So there was like uh, more freedom. There was more of an expansiveness to yourself. You felt like you weren't maybe as boxed in, even well, socially. Well, no, I'm not Not even sure if that is right because, you know, leaving home and going off to London and living this kind of kind of fabulous lifestyle, mm-hmm. that was quite free as well. Oh, 100%. You know, so... so Especially um, when you're young. Yeah, exactly. Because you, you kind of almost need that, don't you? It's like the hero's uh, journey. It's like you yeah. kind of have to go... Yeah. So you can come back home again, change. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the classic hero's journey, really. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, because I I tell you why I'm kind of like zooming in on that. I find in me, there is a, I, I, when I was 18, I moved to Manhattan. I lived in Manhattan for Mm -hmm. three years. Talk about fast paced. There's a part of me now that loves that. 
you know i love getting the bus into belfast i love being a normal boss i love being in a fast-paced entrepreneurial environment mm. meeting lots of people being challenged getting in a flow state and then i love going home on the weekend mm. and doing nothing mm. you know or spending lots of time outdoors and i've noticed that i for me i need both yes you know i can't just have the retreat i also need to go into the frenzy you know because i would empathize with what you're saying where in away from the frenzy i feel more peaceful i feel more grounded i'm more slow i'm probably a better version of myself mm. but if i stay too long i get antsy <laughs> do you know what i mean well i th i think i can resonate with that you know but as i get older I probably need less of the the fast paced. Interesting. Um, but I get that stimulation from other environments, um, like speaking at a conference or, um, you know, going to. A, so rather than the maybe the social element that I had in in London, I get it more professionally now. Mm. You know, I, I still connect a lot with people in the states. But I, I do that online. Yeah. I mean, I used to do a lot of traveling to the States over the last 10 years. In the last, well, since COVID, really, that's stopped. But I still can connect and have really, really uh, inspiring Zoom calls with some fantastic researchers or um, practitioners in, in the States. That sort of thing really uh, lights me up. Um, and then I can take a step out and go and get my hands in the soil in my garden, <laughs> you know, so I can. So um, I do do some teaching in London still. Um, and what I've, I kind of lose track of the years now with because of COVID. But 2022, I've started going back to London for a week at a time to teach. And I love that. But that is absolutely enough. I, <laughs> and I and while, while I'm there. I keep it really professional. Yeah. So, uh, but that 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 I find that stimulating just being being in London. But I, if I was in London for too long, it would be too much for me now. So I'm I do like the um, simpler life. Maybe mm. the simpler life suits me as I get older. But I still, it, it's really important for me to uh, plug myself into those people who are doing really interesting work yeah. in the field that I'm interested in. Well, it's important to feed your own yeah. creativity and inspiration, isn't it? Mm. How do you manage your screen time? The reason why I ask is because you growing up in Elmfield, awesome. Like I wish every child on the planet <laughs> gets to experience something like yeah, that. Yes. Okay? But let's say we put a different family in Elmfield today and you put a two-year-old in there. Mm. And actually, the two-year-old, like London can come to your living room through mm. a screen. Mm. That frenzy, fast pace, whether it's TikTok or YouTube yeah. or whatever, you can actually be in a physical place of calm and be having that super fast-paced yeah. city-style environment. And I think a lot of us today some of the stress and the strain and the exhaustion we feel is that now the fast-paced city never leaves us. There isn't really a chance to disconnect and 
retreat in the same way that, you know, even something I started doing recently is now that we're kind of all back in the office, I'm trying to work like a 1950s mm-hmm. accountant would have worked where it's like, you know, I, I take the bus into work and my work's here. Yes. And then I leave my briefcase, quote unquote, my laptop, my smartphone yeah. in the office. Okay. And then I go back to my life in Dremore. And those are quite extreme boundaries. Yeah. But I found it to be a very interesting experiment. So you leave your phone here. That's interesting. Yeah, I have a, a brick phone. Yeah. Where I can be called on and all that sort of yeah. stuff. But Yeah, interesting. Um, I manage mine by listening to my body. Ooh. Um, so um, I spent a few years, um, not that long ago, uh, working with... Americans and I found myself in this really intense Zoom environment. So this was before COVID. So I was on loads of back-to-back Zoom calls. You were an early adopter? I was an early adopter (laughs) of Zoom. I was using Slack. I was at the start trying to get social media. And I've been on social media myself since it started. So I had a Facebook account in 2006, um, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, all of those back then when they started. And a very clear um, intention that there was only going to be professional. Nice. Now, then I've started my businesses over the last kind of four years or something, five years. When I started that, then I was trying to get traction with a new new uh, social media accounts. So I was, there was a real intensity to social media posting. So between Zoom, Slack and social media, I realized my brain was actually heating up. (laughs) (laughs) There was like, uh, I could actually feel as if it was on fire. If I touched the back of my head, it was burning. My face would go red. And I thought, you know what? And then I'd get a headache. I thought, this is not sustainable at all. And I would have to go outside and, you know, do eye exercises and look to the horizon and get my hands physically in the soil, you know, go and bare feet if I could, really ground myself. So then I changed the structure of my business. So I wasn't work- working so much with those Americans. Took it kind of back into my control and I really try and limit my screen time now. Now, I am like anyone. I I can get completely addicted to my phone and scroll through social media, through emails. I can be sitting looking. If, I'm, if I don't put boundaries down for myself, I can be looking at emails at 10 o'clock at night. Absolutely. So I, I try and stop that. 7.30, maybe 8 o'clock, no more emails, no more screen time. If I do, I notice again my body goes into this real sort of contracted space. So if I don't limit screen time, I can literally feel the contraction in my body. Yeah. And this is these are the sort of skills I try and help other people learn so that they can really monitor what's working for them and what's not working for them because we're all different. Mm-hmm. We all have different tolerances. Um I'm sure there's a different tolerance depending on when you're born as well. You know, interesting. 
I, I don't know. I haven't got any data to back that up. But I mean, it's possible. You know, you talk about digital natives and all, all that sort of mm. line of thought. If you've grown up with that, I do think, uh, no, this is a real stretch. Well, I, mean, I do think your brain is almost wired differently. That's how it, it seems from an observation point of view. It is. That's what I notice with my younger nieces, you know, and um, even my nieces who are um, older teens now, that when they were little, the, their ability to work out technology mm-hmm. was seemed to be instinctive. It's. I've heard it described as, you know, devices like laptops and smartphones are actually more of an extension of a digital native's brain mm. rather than an external device that you come to to use. Yeah. And in, in some ways, the way that these things are designed, they are kind of neuro-like. You know, there's mm-hmm. different pathways and everything is mm-hmm. kind of structured in a certain way and da 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 da, da. And it's very interesting because you, you see that very clearly if you mm-hmm. compare the extremes of, you know, say a 13-year-old on TikTok and a 19-year-old, 90-year-old who's getting the grips with an iPad. Yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah. What what I find is is the is the practice on how people use them, you know something like Slack. I was you know reading about um, oh, I don't know the the recent um, takeover of Twitter and the different practices, and I was thinking oh my goodness I could not I could not work in an environment like that <laughs> with that just it's just so fast paced so fast I couldn't my body physically couldn't cope with that anymore yeah although is that age is that because I've readjusted to being more in nature and really trying to so my ideal is trying to attune to the rhythms of the natural environment mm-hmm. and going to bed earlier in the winter getting up earlier in the summer um being outside more in the longer days um really feeling the rain in my skin when it's raining not hiding away from it you know really trying to um with food as well, eating in season food, really, really trying not to buy anything that is imported, yeah, and really, really trying to eat only locally produced food as a way of really attuning again my body to its local environment. Mm-hmm. I wonder. I I do wonder about that. I wonder if whether um, you know the. Um, the right balance is there because mm-hmm. I, I I am for progression and it's not like I'm... This is the thing. I'm, it's I, really hard. I d- it's not that I think we should all go back to how we lived in the 1800s or uh-huh. 1600s or even 3,000 years ago. You know, I love going to stone circles in, and we're blessed in Ireland with so much ancient history Absolutely. on our doorstep. There's a big fort in Dromore, isn't there? Yeah, huge. You can just, <laughs> just walk up to, you know. There, there, um, so there is that, and we're we're much more in touch with those older practices, which I think are very useful and helpful for our health and well-being. But also, it's important. The progression's important, and how do you get that balance that also supports our our natural environment and doesn't destroy the planet before? Well. We've already done that, but, you know. Sure. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I won't remember the the person who wrote this kind of concept, but I remember reading a few years ago, I'm just going to assume it came out of Silicon Valley because, I mean, where else would it come out of, really? This idea of prophets versus wizards. 
Hmm. And they said that prophets are people who keep saying we need to go backwards. So, and I, I like archetypally, I'm guilty of being a prophet. So I'm like, we need to throw our phones away. We need to eat the way we did thousands of years ago. We need to go back to knowing our neighbors. I'm very much bent that way. Mm -hmm. And then he says, but then there's another type of person and they're wizards. And they are people who see the old, but they also see the future. Mm. And their goal is to innovate and figure out how we can marry the two together. Interesting. And I think that's interesting. That is interesting. And interesting, I think Ireland as a whole has something of that wizard nature. Mm. You know, it's got an entrepreneurial culture, but also it's connected back to the magic of old. Yes. And it's the magic that really I, that just I love about living here. You know, it's, we we don't have to go very far, whether it's in our arts culture or our social culture or our old traditions that are just woven into everyday life here. Yeah. Um, but also there's that entrepreneurial culture as well. And, you know, that's... So I think Ireland has a huge amount to offer, actually. I agree. I definitely agree. And I think we have a historically even had an interesting role to play on the world stage. Mm. You, know, you don't need to dig too far to see actually a lot of the innovation and progress of the mm. world. It's been fueled by a lot of people from this part of the world. Well, yes. It's interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good swerve. I like that. Okay. Trauma. Mm How did you get into trauma? Well, um, I ended up training as a craniosacral therapist uh, back in 2015. And with that... I I left working in that PR world and jumped in the deep end of uh, the mind-body medicine world. And with that, I started running a big conference um, uh, with another guy. And it was, we, we would invite pioneers from all over the world. They tended to be American. Um, and they were, they, the 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 interest was really in the trauma recovery field. So we had people like Peter Levine and Stephen Porges and Bessel van der Kolk and Gabor Mate all coming to speak at this conference in London. The All Stars. And I was I was just so blessed to be able to hang out with these people um, and and study with them as well. Uh, why was I interested in that world? Because I could have gone down many different routes. Um, but I, um, that's probably because I grew up here. Sure. I, I reckon. Um, it resonated with me. I could make uh, more sense of my own process, my own uh, way of being in the world, my own uh, difficulties and challenges. And all what they were saying was making sense to me. So I just started doing more and more studying around that and really interested in the whole neurophysiology and what happens in the body when we have early life experiences or even pre and perinatal experiences and what's happening and the intergenerational stuff as well that really fascinates me going back you know what happened to our grandparents or great grandparents and how is that uh, genetically then encoded in us and the epigenetic uh, results 
so I, I, yeah, I got to hang out with these amazing people and study with them and have very luckily kept contact with uh, some of them. Um, Steve Porges is one who um, I've been very lucky to keep a good relationship with and have learnt with from I've learnt from him so much and his work really sim- I keep things really simple um, uh, is that uh, his work's all about how to make s- ourselves safe mm. it's a um, how can we be safe because once we feel safe like deeply physiologically safe we then can relate to each other better we can relate to ourselves better we're l- more likely to make the right choices for ourselves. Uh, we're not acting out of defence. We're acting out of a, 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 a genuine, authentic expression of ourselves. He has that quote, I think it's him, where he says, if you want to make the world a better place, start by making people feel safe. That's exactly it. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So... Um, I, I, I'm new to fatherhood, so, you know, obviously I see everything in life through the lens of fatherhood mm. currently because uh, I, I never really thought about kids before <laughs> do you know what I mean like and then you see it and you're like wow and it, it, you know it shows you so much about yourself as well but you see that so clearly with kids if you yes. can make kids feel safe yes it's basically everything it, I you know if you want to keep things simple it it really is everything and it's same same with adults mm. you know um People usually act out of fear. Yeah. You know, act in a difficult way because they're in a state of fear. I think the glasses as such of trauma, if you put, you know, these glasses on and you see the world through a lens of trauma, it starts to make things feel a little bit clearer. Yeah. You know, especially in Northern Ireland. Mm. You know, very often I would have big question marks over why a certain person or a group of people act or think in a certain way. Mm. And often whenever I put the lens of trauma on, it's just like, ah, yeah, now it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. If you kind of can get your that um, understanding of where people are coming from, it makes it much easier to... Have compassion, actually. Yeah. Have compassion for those around you. You know, if it's um, someone is making you upset or angry or whatever, you think, oh, well, what's going on here? You know, take a step back, zoom out. Think, well, what's really happening here? Um, am I am I actually physically safe? Am I going to be in danger? No. Okay. So maybe I can listen better to what's happening here. And and then the, the compassion comes in and the understanding. I think that's really, that's a nice little tip you just shared. If you can kind of uh, turn off the trauma bells in your own brain, mm. you know, I'm about to have an overblown reaction here. Number one, can we park that for a little second? And then number two, you know, why? Once you get to the root of that, then it allows you to be more present with whoever it is. I've noticed this with marriage quite a lot. Yeah. You know, first few years of marriage, you, you're you're fighting over like, I don't know, the way the socks were hung up. You know, you're like, and you're like, what is happening here? This is so weird. And then you're kind of like, ah, okay, I see you. There's a part of parent number one in my life. There's a part of parent number two. Mm-hmm. And we all have that and we all learn to deal with that. But mm-hmm. I think, yeah, the world of trauma has been 
uh, very useful. Mm. It's a shame, you know, you would almost like everyone in the world to go through some sort of a, you know, a trauma GCSE <laughs> because it would be so, well, so useful. Well, I think that's that's part of my mission is to raise awareness of, of little hacks people can employ. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something like turning your head. You know, if you're feeling a, a bit of overwhelm and you feel that maybe anger in a difficult situation, can you um, just orient to the room, turn your head because you're stimulating nerves in your neck that are then feeding into the back of your brainstem that are helping your whole vagal response to tone up, you calm down, you feel safer. Mm. You know, so I I share a lot about these like micro hacks that you can do. Um I was about to introduce Stephen Porges at one of my conferences. Now, this is back in 2009, I think. It's really helpful because I've used it ever since. And I was going through this really difficult dynamic with someone else in the, the whole event. And I was just about to fall apart. And, you know, I'm not the most... Um, I, I do love standing up on stage, actually, but I also can get incredibly nervous. So I was incredibly nervous and I thought, how am I going to introduce this man? And I was standing in the green room with him and he just put his hand on my shoulder and he said, employ what I'm about to speak about. Mm -hmm. Speak slowly. You've got my bio in front of you. Just speak slowly with lots of intonation and you'll get through it, which I did. And... As soon as I started doing that, my body, whole body started feeling calmer. And the reason is, is because you're using the nerves that innovate your voice box, but also you're breathing out slowly and you're calming your whole body. And not only do you feel better, but the people you're speaking to start thinking, ah, they're picking up cues from you thinking that person's safe. Mm -hmm. So I better listen to what they're saying. Or they're more inclined to listen and hear what you're saying as well. Wow. So the whole room you can feel then is responding to you, which is a positive feedback loop. And you feel better so you can continue to speak. So I share this with so many people. I, I, share, I, I run these uh, you know, courses either for professionals or for individuals. But I remember running one a few years ago uh, for a group of therapists and they were working kind of frontline therapists, so hard, tough environments that they were dealing with every day. But anyway, one went back and it was a two-day course and one came back the next day and she said, I started speaking slowly at dinner last night with my family and the arguments just completely stopped. Because <laughs> <laughs> everyone then wow. started feeling... You know, so, so it all happens unconsciously because your nervous system yeah. then just starts rebalancing. So all these little tips, you know, they don't have to be complicated. I remember listening to a thing by, oh goodness, is his name Chris, maybe Voss. He was a former FBI negotiator Mm. and he talks about uh, deploying the smooth late night radio DJ voice (laughs) (laughs) and how actually in... In high-pressure environments, obviously he was dealing with hostage situations. (laughs) But, you know, a a fight at home or a tough negotiation at work says if you deploy that smooth, slow radio DJ voice, actually you can change the room. 
You can. You try it. It's it's really it's it can be good fun as well to to see how effective it is. So speaking slowly and intonation are the keys. Lots of ups and downs. Ups and downs, which can sound you know, false, but then once you get into it, you realise people are responding. Then you'll naturally go into the intonation because when you are frightened, your voice is flat. Oh. And it tends to tighten as well, so it'll the pitch will go up. So, you know, when you're in an, an interview situation and you're nervous and you're speaking in a really tight voice <laughs> and I can't say what I want to say because you're going to run out of breath, that's, you know, that's quite common, isn't it? It's very engaging as well. Like, I find that, you know, I'm thinking of a guy in my life right now, he, he lives in Dublin, and he's the most engaging communicator I've ever met. Mm. And it's because he's so slow. right. And he has a lot of intonation and he really draws you in. I mean, really draws you in. He'll be telling an average story and it'll feel like an Oscar worthy performance because he just has this beautiful speed to him Mm. that uh, often you lack. And I think there have been studies showing that people can become more popular, like within student groups, (laughs) because people respond better to those people because they they because they feel safer around them. Wow. I'm going to ask you a really out of the field question here because it just came into my head. If people are craving so much safety, no, I answered my own question. I was going to say if people are craving so much safety, why do you think large segments of people are turning to quite uh, brash aggressive style leadership but I guess that's just like a a twisted way because they want to feel safe they want like a big protector that sort of thing yes and also there is the the whole theory of people will go towards what they're used to Mm. so people can um you know in in trauma situations people can the the abusive situation becomes the norm and that 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 feels better for them yeah so that can be a, a negative feedback yeah the devil you know sort of yeah. situation okay um, but also then you could look at the Jungian perspective and look at what's happening in the collective and this this whole move towards um, p- the polarizations mm-hmm. this huge polarization across so many different political systems in the massively um, you know that what's causing that well it's a backlash against something and there needs to be yeah there needs to be a, an equal reaction to to that yeah we could talk for a long time about trauma and various hacks and tips what's a good on ramp for people who are listening they're like ah, i kind of i've heard about trauma before don't really have a full grip on it haven't done much work myself what would be a good starting point for people Depends if they want to look at YouTube, if they want to read a book. Um, uh, there are some great books by Peter Levine, Bessel van der Kolk, Gabor Mate. Gabor Mate might be a good starting point either in YouTube, <laughs> YouTube or um, in his books. Yeah, he's, he's very accessible. Um, he's just written a new book called The Myth of Normal. Mm. But if you want to 
if you're on a two-minute YouTube clip, also he's good at that. And that's, I think people's attention can be, you need sometimes need to start with those really short, short ones. Absolutely. Yeah. Talk to me about the market. So um, I had this vision of, uh, so I'm going to backtrack a little bit, but um, I've had this vision way back since about 2005, 2006 to set up a well-being center somewhere in the world. Now, with my experience in the Colorado Rocky Mountains, I thought Rocky Mountains, I looked at properties in British Columbia, those mountains and sea, all very, you know, out there and in nature. Um, looked at places in Spain, southwest Cork. And then my mother got ill and I came back to Elmfield and I looked out the window one day and thought, actually, this courtyard, which, um, you know, my father, Parents are getting older. Dad's not farming so much. Maybe I could see if I could renovate these buildings. This has been my my sanctuary, so maybe I can turn it into a sanctuary for other people with a retreat center, but more actually a focus on learning. So running trainings um, as well as retreat experiences. Um, so I set to renovating all those buildings and put a lot of money into it and. Uh, Finished all of that process in 2019, just the end of 2019. Perfect timing. And then COVID came along and we weren't allowed to use them for a couple of years or, you know, on and off and whatever. So part of my passion has always been food, well-being, naturally produced food, you know, grew up on a farm. You know, we grew all our own vegetables, ate our own meat. You know, it was all very... Just because that's the way it was, not really, uh, not with a lot of um, conscious thought really put into it. It's just like we ate stews and soups and that's what we did. Um, But also um, my father was an international hockey player, so he was very fit and very into fitness and wellness. And mum's a physio by training, so fitness and wellness were in our family uh, milieu. <laughs> so, um, so food I've always really loved in terms of health food, and because of the we weren't allowed to use the inside, we've got this huge courtyard, and I thought, well, maybe we could run a food market because that would be part of that was always in food and um, s- providing a place for micro-producers to sell their wares. It's always in my longer-term vision. That was fast-tracked because of the pandemic. So um, so we set up the market, uh, positioned it as a whole food and well-being market. So we, we now have about 40 producers who come regularly. We have a core set of producers. It's run months, once a month. Um, largely food, but we also have... Um, maybe 10 or so sustainable living products. So again, raising that awareness of where do you, um, where do your consumer products come from? These are all sustainable, all got that ethos of looking after our environment, um, whether it's products for your skin or soaps or candles um, and the food, again, all local micro producers selling food that is ultimately supports your health. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't nice sweet treats, but the sweet treats 
have a lot, an awful lot of thought put into them um, in uh, that they're, you know, they're not processed. There's no processed food there. Um, and, the, the, um, you know, we, we were saying earlier, there's a passion in those producers and to bring that passion and, and a lot of young people setting up new businesses with passion for their product, doing things differently, really looking after the environment. Um, I, I, I just love it. And it, so it's created a, a nice kind of community feel, um, uh, a kind of day out that hopefully is accessible to most people. Um, yeah, and it definitely hits on your kind of core motivation of education mm. because what doesn't happen a lot these days, the way most of us buy and consume our food is we're completely detached from the people that make them. Mm. And I love going to the market in your courtyard because... Number one, <laughs> the food is just insane. Like it is unlike anything you could ever imagine. But then you get to have a conversation with the person that literally made it that mm. morning or two days ago or, you know, that week. And the amount I have learned through that process is fascinating. Mm. Whether it's there's a gentleman who was selling plums there in September. He mm. was telling me these are damson plums. And, you know, it's the first time his trees were fruited them this, you know, and last year there was none. And this year there's none, blah, blah. And I was like, whoa, I didn't know that about plums. That's fascinating. Our, you know, Elsie Van Straten from Kanaku Biltong tell me all about her meat and how it's made. And, you know, the processes that go into that and the protein content. And you're like, wow, this is just something that you don't get in Lidl. <laughs> You know, it's incredible. Although Lidl does do well for local produce. You know what? They are, they have a good local ethos. Mm. Yeah, they do. And the local ethos, I think, is just, for me, so important. You know, I think um, if we can really support people who are producing in in on our on our land, you know, not having to fly things in, and uh, it really feeds into our whole health mm-hmm. system, um, economically, but also into our uh, how our bodies respond. Like you know, raw raw local honey has so many health benefits, rather than buying honey that's flown in, sold in Tesco's, goodness knows where it's from, because the bees locally are feeding on the pollen that actually will help whatever ailment that we're trying to heal is um, really good for hay fever because you're um, addressing the the, the um, irritant is uh, is healed from the honey that the bees use. And, um, so. But it's almost like the same principle that like vaccines work on, right? You're getting a little bit of the yeah. the bad thing yeah. <laughs> and hope that your body will mount a, yeah. a healthy response or to a homeopathic it. remedy. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. So that, and there's loads, of, I mean, that, that honey one is a very straightforward one, but I think that happens with all the foods we, we eat if we can eat locally. Fascinating. You excited for the Christmas market? 
Yes, I am. We've got an amazing lineup of um, people, vendors coming. Food and uh, for the Christmas ones, there are more crafts. Oh, it's a craft it, too. Yeah, great. Oh, so yes, so the the crafts for the Christmas. Um, we've got about fifty vendors in total, and probably about half of them are crafts for the great. Christmas ones. Um, the idea that you can come and buy local produce products for your Christmas gifts. Yes, so there are you know from candles to baskets to linens to. Woodwork, oh, plants. Oh. <laughs> so we've got such a variety. So we have quite, we try to make sure that the, there's a big variety so that there's not 20 different people selling candles, yeah. you know, so that yeah. we've got one or two candle producers, one or two wood people, you know, et cetera. But yeah, no, we've got, it's got a, got a really, really good lineup. Have you sold out yet? Uh, not for this weekend. Not for this weekend? Oh, yes, because there's one this weekend, isn't there's there? There's one this weekend, yes. Yeah. No, we, We've booked for, I don't know, for December. The, the 10th or the 11th or something like that. 10th of December, 10th. yes. Yeah, we booked and we all booked as a friendship group. And as we were booking, it all started to sell out. We're like, no, 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 no quickly. What's happened, everybody? <laughs> yeah. Well, we we will, um, you know, we will have room as well for people to come on the, you know, on the day. Um, we just want to make sure that everyone has a good experience and so we manage the flow of traffic. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's the reason for the, the advanced tickets. It's brilliant. No, we're we're very, very excited. We're really looking forward to it. And I highly recommend anyone. I was going to say for a, a day out, it's kind of become a, a reoccurring day out for us. <laughs> <laughs> that's great to hear. Yeah, it's a great opportunity for, you know, you've kind of got it all. Like you've got that escape into that nature you've got amazing food you've got great conversations with local producers and you just have the most amazing grounds to you know run around in very very exciting well i'm, I'm really pleased to hear that your your kids are able to have a a running run around and uh, allow their imaginations to run wild yeah explore that little yeah that little rubbly fort over the bridge <laughs> yes. it's fascinating where can people find you uh, the easiest way to find me is through the Elmfield Estate website. Cool. And then there are links to everything else on there. And that's just elmfieldestate.com. And it's elmfield, E-L-M-F-I-E-L-D, estate.com. Some people add an S in there. Mm, lovely. Jane, I love this. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Yeah, I enjoyed enjoy everything it. you shared. It was good. Thank you. Cheers. Unbelievable stuff. Look, thank you so much once again for listening. My name is Matthew Thompson and we're on a mission to share 350 conversations that celebrate Northern Ireland and the incredible people who call it home. Massive thanks once again to NI Connections for making today's episode possible. And like I said at the top of the show, you can find out more about our global diaspora, listen to other conversations in this series and sign up to their free monthly newsletter by visiting niconnections.com. Other than that, hope you really enjoyed today's episode. And I look forward to catching you again soon.